Hello, and welcome back to Art and Mount Holyoke College Art Museum student-run podcast that discusses not just the art on the walls, but its interdisciplinary connections. My name is Molly Wolforth, and I'm a student guide and curatorial intern here at the museum. And in this episode, I'm joined by Professor of Music History, Adeline Mueller, and Senior Music Major Mackenzie Stratton as we discuss two illuminated musical manuscript pages from the 13th century and unpack how the sights and sounds of worship are woven together on the page. Listen to the end to hear both chants sung in Mount Holyoke's Abbey Chapel. I'm joined here today by Professor Adeline Mueller. Hello. uh, And senior and music major Mackenzie Stratton. Hello. And we are in the Hill Gallery, which is the museum's Renaissance and Baroque art gallery. Uh, And we're looking at two uh, medieval music manuscript folios. One from, of the Iste Sanctus from the late 13th century, most likely Italian, and another which is uh, from about the same time period, uh, which uh, depicts the Assumption of the Virgin, also from the 13th to 14th century, and again, most likely Italian. Now, both Professor Mueller and Mackenzie have worked with these manuscripts a couple of times before. They're, they're old friends in this case. So we're gonna start our conversation just sort of thinking about where and when and how and who the manuscripts would have been used by and in what kind of context. Sure, so these are quite large folios uh, and their size really indicates that they would be used by a choir of multiple singers that would be gathered together uh, following a leader, the cantor or cantrix, Um, and they would be singing this music as part of the regular cycle of services that take place in a church or monastic community over the course of of the liturgical year. So each of these two manuscripts reflects a different feast, a different liturgical service. The one that starts with the text Gaudiamus that one would be uh, would happen at the same time every year uh, around late summer in uh, celebrating the mass that would honor the Assumption of the Virgin Mary. So that's a that's a chant, uh, the opening chant of that mass. The Iste Sanctus is from a different liturgical context it would be used in a memorial service that's part of the cycle of services that constitute the the divine office, the cycle of of services that take place over the course of a given day. So this would, we think, take place during the matins service uh, where a cycle of psalms would be sung. And in this particular context, the congregants, the, um, the religious who would be singing, would be honoring a bishop or priest who had died. Um, it's part of what's known as the memorial for the common of one martyr. So the chant honors the person who has died as joining the ranks of martyrs in heaven. So in terms of who would be singing this music, we unfortunately don't know exactly where these 
particular folios came from, what codexes they, uh, they were separated from. Um, these chants uh, are sometimes able to be identified by various means in terms of their, uh, their geographical location or their rough time, time period in history. But we know that they would have been used by either a cathedral choir in a large sort of urban space or by a monastic community of monks or nuns living in solitude and isolation. Thinking about how these were very much rep repeatedly used objects in the context of the church and the service, um, I was wondering sort of how that repeated use might affect you know, how either the singers might feel about the work and, and might experience the work, um, as well as the music itself. Definitely. Well, yeah, these objects are really interesting because they can be so precise in the way they notate the text and the music, uh, but at the same time, they straddle an oral and a literary tradition in very interesting ways. Some of these congregations uh, or um, monastic communities might have religious who were only semi-literate, in which case they would be learning these chants really through oral tradition by simply imitating the singers around them through learning over many years of singing these same chants over and over again. And so there's a really interesting fluidity between uh, the oral and the literary tradition that's marked in these texts. Mackenzie, as someone who has sung these a bunch of times, um, do you sort of feel any of that oral tradition coming to life at all? I feel that there is an oral tradition, and in some ways as a performer, um, in performing early music, we often feel this barrier of we're trying to replicate what we think it happened, but we just don't know because it's not like we could record them um, or record what things could have sounded like and the same chant could be performed differently from monastery to monastery, from country to country. So there's this feeling of connection to a great tradition, but also this kind of wall um, one of the things that I feel is very different in performing it today versus having that context of the oral tradition is kind of the declamation of the text and the understanding of the text. So in a monastic setting, they would know these texts really well, and in singing, the notes were a vehicle for portraying the text, and it would have at least we're, at least we think it would have a speech-like rhythm, um, and this is something I find even like when I listen to you know professional ensembles singing chant versus recordings of like nuns singing chant. There's this connection to the text from knowing it, from being immersed in it, that really carries. While a modern singer might be looking at the notes as well as the text and thinking about how to shape it as a piece of music that's sort of and that sort of approach is influenced very much kind of by our 19th century conceptions. But overall, as a performer, I am trying to, every time I approach these chants, I'm trying to connect more with the text to let that inform 
because that's all we're, that's really, as performers, that's what's connecting us. Mm -hmm. That's what we have and that's what we're going off of for how they might have performed it back then. Yeah, uh, just to add on to that, when I was in graduate school, I worked on a chant recording project with a professor at UC Berkeley named Richard Crocker. And when we were recording these chants, I was almost over singing them. Mm -hmm. I was taking these deep breaths before <laughs> I sang and using all my sort of, you know, my minimal <laughs> vocal technique. And Richard stopped me at one point and just said, how, how much breath do you need to say a sentence? And I said, well, not much, you know? And I, I tried one out. I realized I wasn't taking a big breath. He said, that's all this is. This is just heightened speech. It's extended speech, which is what Mackenzie was referring to. So we think of this music sometimes, um, as you say, kind of anachronistically. We're looking back on it as music, but it was also just text to enunciate. And so if we kind of pull back from a kind of modern perspective and actually put ourselves in the position of being monastic or um, religious, who are, this is really just a way to facilitate communing with this, these sacred texts, then I think the, the music really just kind of flows um, and it, it, uh, it seems more kind of authentic. And to piggyback on that, it's practical music. It's music with a purpose and it sets the day and I, we'll talk about more about its function later, but it was functional and not part of this tradition of sitting down and listening to music. It was participatory and it was a part of your day. You were singing a bunch of these chants all day. Your mention of the fact that it is rooted in, in function as much as it is rooted in, in text, I think is interesting, particularly when we consider, you know, we've placed them in an art museum context <laughs> here, um, which I think prompts us to think a little bit about the visual um, and thinking about how the visual might have interacted with um, both sort of the function of the works, but also, you know, sort of the, the, the content of them. Um, so I guess sort of on the, on, on the first level of that, how does the visual affect the actual act of singing this? And then on the second level, how does the visual connect with sort of the greater messages that are going on in these works? It's beautiful to see these folios in this space surrounded by other sacred artworks, particularly to see the leaf that depicts the Assumption of the Virgin Mary and the historiated initial and then to see right behind it your panel showing Mary with, uh, with the infant Christ. So these really truly are also objects of beauty. You can see that in the care with which the illuminators covered every detail, every sort of spare inch of the page with decoration. There's clearly something in excess of function going mm -hmm. on here. There's just a joy in the beauty of the inks of the gold leaf uh, and those kind of decorative aspects to these these pages but at the same time there the historiated initials serve as like chapter headings in a book they allow you to find your place within a large codex 
So even as they're objects of beauty, the historiated initials also serve a very kind of mundane purpose of helping you find your place uh, and showing you where the main kind of outlines of any given uh, liturgical ceremony might begin and end. All the way down to one of my favorite details that you find in medieval manuscripts, which is the kustos, which is that little sort of tiny slanted note at the end of each stave, staff, at the end of each staff, you see a thing called a kustos. It's a slanted sort of faint note that shows you what pitch you're going to sing the first note of the next line on. So it literally means custodian. <laughs> so it's like a, a little custodian note that takes you by the hand and uh, helps you find your place on the next line. So there are all these little details that are about function, but at the same time they're surrounded by initials and uh, decorative work of great beauty. So I feel like it, with these medieval manuscripts you really don't have to choose between function and beauty. You get to have both in one object, and I find that remarkable. Combination of form and function here is, it's, it's so interesting because I feel like with a lot of the artwork, when it's sort of taken out of its original context, we forget that it had both form and function. Um, and I think when you include it in, in this gallery setting, as you mentioned with the, the um, panel painting of the Virgin, but also um, looking a little to the side, you see some earlier panel paintings um, that are, were typically included either as like devotional images or in larger mm -hmm. scale church altarpieces. I'm particularly thinking about the Duccio um, panel, mm -hmm. which is all the way to the left against the sort of the blue velvet backing there, um, which was part of a giant um, church uh, altarpiece from Siena, the Maesta altarpiece. Mm -hmm. But thinking about that, as we're seeing like the rich sort of pastel palette and the gold, um, I think also reminds me, looking at these panels, that they're not kind of artworks in a vacuum. Um, they fit much more into like a larger aesthetic scheme that's going on in the church. So I can sort of imagine myself in this setting, you know, a beautiful, rich, lushly decorated church, and then you see these amazing pages being brought out, and they're the music that you're going to sing. So I think, you know, the, the form and the function sort of work together on a, an aesthetic and a sort of a practical way. Uh, but I, I would definitely notice how they, they work on like a spiritual level as well. They fit in with a larger sort of spiritual messaging of church aesthetics in a way um, from sort of the medieval and the early renaissance. Um, Absolutely. Well, I mean, when we think of a medieval cathedral, it's really a multimedia extravaganza, right? So, um, and some of the, some of the art is meant for the choir. Some of the art would be accessible only to the choir. Some of the art might be accessible only to the celebrant. Um, and then of course there's all this art that is there for the congregants to enhance their communion with, with God. So everything from the stained glass windows to the incense to the architecture of the space itself, to the music resonating in that space that's tailor-made to, uh, to help this chant 
resonate and seem to be coming from the heavens themselves. All of that contributes to the devotional experience of everyone who's in that space. And so seeing this, these different forms of art together in, in this space helps us imagine what that was like for all the different members of a church or cathedral community or a monastic community that would be gathered in that space. This idea of the spiritual sort of being an inherent part of the, of, you know, the viewership experience the, and how the church is kind of a multimedia experience, all in terms intended to communicate that. How did the music itself sort of work with the messaging that's going on here? Tonally, musically, syllabically, sort of how, how, do, how do we find the sacred in the music? Right, well, one of, one of my favorite things to discover about these leaves and the music that they contain is how even within what may seem on the surface to be a very kind of simple unison chant melody there are still these moments of what we sometimes actually call in musicology tone painting of actually painting the meaning of the words through the succession of of notes and pitches and uh, both of these manuscripts contain several of those, of those moments. For instance, the Iste Sanctus, the text of that opening uh, chant reads, This holy man who fought for the law of God even unto death, never feared the words of the wicked, for he was founded upon the firm rock. And that bit of being founded on the firm rock, there's a moment in the music where what has up until now been a very, what we call melismatic approach to the, the setting of the text, lots of notes per syllable uh, for the, the part of, about not, not fearing. Uh, that, that part of the chant is very melismatic. It goes, no. about being founded on the firm rock has this very syllabic setting. Fundatus That fundatus sounds foundational. It sounds firm. It sounds rooted. And so here's an instance where the anonymous composer of this chant has taken the care to illustrate the difference between fear, which can wander and float, and the founding on the firm rock through the approach to music and text setting. So that's one of my favorite moments in the Iste Sanctus manuscript. Mackenzie, did you want to talk at all about uh, Gaudiamus? The Iste Sanctus has a lot of these melismas, a lot of these uh, notes over one syllable. When visually, if you look at the Gaudiamus, you see a lot of text and you see a lot of these notes close together. So. You can even just with soft vision look at it, see that it's probably going to be syllabic because you need to get through a lot of notes mm -hmm. and a lot of text. So where there are these melismas is really telling. First, my favorite thing is um, the rising fifth. Usually in chant, you have a lot of close intervals, seconds, thirds, um, but the Gaudiamo starts with the Gaudiamo. And 
fifth is really striking and it's on the word rejoice. The first line is rejoice in the Lord. And after that fifth, after that God almost after that rejoice, there's then this um, really long melisma on domino. No. It's really striking in contrast with the rest of the chant, which is uh, pretty syllabic. And then the next melismatic area, if, is, if you look in the bottom right corner, is on that word um, angeli. So we have the long melisma on domino in the Lord, and then the long melisma on angels. And so it's like the melismas are sort of the heavenly sphere of music. Yeah, it's almost as though the, the chant is um, both honoring the greatness of God and the angels through that much more melismatic, lovely, beautiful setting, and also trying to kind of imitate what the composer would think of as the heavenly voice or the choir of angels who are believed to be singing up in the celestial sphere the most glorious music without any text whatsoever. So the closest we can get to the angels is to sing these long melismas when we speak their names. It, it's fascinating to hear even just the snippets of, of the piece um, in a context where uh, you know, we can look at the prints while we, while we um, think about that. Uh, but thinking about how you both have performed this um, a good number of times, what is it like to perform these works, you know, um, many hundreds of years after? Um, and sort of, in what kinds of contexts do you tend to perform these? And how does that sort of affect that performance? The first time that we performed these, or at least that I performed them, was actually in this gallery um, my sophomore year. It was the 140th celebration, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so we had the experience of singing uh, with the manuscripts next to us and being in this space with all of the artwork inspiring this, again, this aesthetic um, context that you were talking about earlier. And that was one of my first times singing chant and performing chant, like in public. And I mean, I remember vividly I was very nervous because I was just starting to dabble in early music performance and performance practice and I remember going to you know my mentor Stephanie who loves early music as well and just being really insecure about not knowing how to do it right. As I've performed it in classrooms, in Abbey Chapel, in these various contexts, I've come to realize just how much of it is again not overthinking it, not overseeing it, like you were saying, Adeline. It's, uh, it's looking at the music and being a vehicle for the music and for the text. And I've actually, now that I've spent more years like just reading about early music, I feel a lot more comfortable like looking at the neums themselves. The neums are what we call the square notes as opposed to the notes that we're used to. Um, and finding the expression in them, seeing the way that things are stacked, seeing how when there are melismas, they look more like diamonds and you can see where there are running lines and letting that visual inform my shaping. And 
that's come with just interacting with the actual manuscripts more, but also performing them in different academic contexts and experiencing seeing it in a church versus seeing it in a gallery versus seeing it in a classroom. How is it different to sing it in those different contexts? Like, what do you feel like it changes when you're in a chapel space as opposed to sort of a non-traditional place to sing these works? Definitely. Um, I actually even think that there is a big difference, at least that I feel, in singing it in a smaller um, worship space like Interfaith Sanctuary at Abbey Chapel versus singing in the full chapel. Um, I sang these in interfaith and it's smaller, the acoustic is different and um, it feels closer and more intimate in the devotion and so in performing that I tend to feel really connected to this work, uh, the text and music combining versus singing it in the larger chapel you have this really live acoustic and it's really wobbly and so part of my thoughts when performing chant there is conveying it and making the diction crisp and making it possible for the people throughout the space to understand what saying is. So then I'm kind of thinking more about the performance of it. I'm thinking about it more as a performer versus in a classroom I'm thinking about it in a very academic way in okay, so what were the monks or the nuns or the choirs and the cathedrals doing? What did this look like? And I'm picturing, you know, the medieval cathedrals I've seen and I'm just sort of pasting it in and imagining it in that context. All of these experiences have been really helpful in shaping a more complete understanding of performance. Yeah, yeah one of my favorite things to show students when we talk about chant in medieval monastic and cathedral contexts is the few illuminations that we have that actually show choirs singing and a lot of times what you see in the way the singers are depicted is they're huddled very close together and they often even have their hands on each other's shoulders or backs and it's as though the the spirit of God and through the music is connecting all of them in this very bodily, very physical way. And I definitely have experienced that in non-sacred context just through singing. I mean, singing together, singing the same text together with a group of people, whether small or large, is a very profound bodily experience and um, spiritual experience. And so it's wonderful to see that conveyed in those illustrations of medieval monastic singers who are you know, very close together, very intimately connected through the sound that they're making together. So that's been something that I've enjoyed observing and participating in when either my students are encountering these manuscripts in a class visit or as Mackenzie said, whether it's more of a kind of performative context uh, in the galleries or in Abbey Chapel, there's still that sense that we are somehow communing with these monastic singers from centuries ago, even though we have no idea who they were or where they were, 
we're sitting here singing the same notes and looking at the same piece of parchment that they looked at, and there's something really exciting about that. Well, thank you so much to Professor Mueller and to Mackenzie for joining me here today in conversation about uh, the museum's two medieval music manuscripts. Um, it's been such a pleasure getting to hear um, your performance insights, your scholarly insights, and sort of talking about um, these beautiful pages. So thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. And now, listen to the Iste Sanctus and Garayamus in full, recorded in Mount Holyoke's Abbey Chapel.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Art and. Many thanks to Professor Mueller and Mackenzie for this conversation about the interconnections between visual and auditory expression as seen on MH Cam's two 13th century Italian musical manuscript pages. To learn more about these pages or to listen to more episodes of Art and, please visit our website at artmuseum.mtholyoke.edu. Special thanks to the MHCAM education staff and to you for listening.